For the love of God is this, that we obey His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. In the strange world of United Methodism, uh, we do a lot of strange things, and perhaps the strangest is called annual conference. Annual conference. It's uh, one opportunity a year that we get to gather with uh, clergy and lay people from all over the state of Virginia, all United Methodists, to be together for a long weekend. We gather to talk about a lot of things. We pray, we sing, we worship, we ordain those who are becoming pastors, we remember those who have died, and of course, we vote. We vote. The first time I ever went to annual conference, I was a teenager. Uh, the lay leader for my church was sick and was not able to go to annual conference, so they asked me, a teenager, to go gather with 5,000 United Methodists and to vote on my church's behalf. I can't really tell you much about that first annual conference. You know why? Because it was boring. It was so boring. Four days of sitting in a room with 5,000 people trying to listen to them all say something that felt like it really didn't matter. I was wrestling with a call to ministry at the time, so I went, thinking this might fuel my call to ministry. I was very mistaken. <laughs> the only thing I really remember about that annual conference, of course, happened during the time of voting. voting. Somebody was putting forth an amendment, a call to action for the whole Virginia conference, and their amendment said something to the effect of, we want every United Methodist Church in the state of Virginia to take at least one Sunday a year to pray for our troops. And not only for our troops, but in particular for those fighting in wars overseas. Right? There was an audible sort of affirmation from the room. Yes, we should pray for our troops. And as always happens in an annual conference, somebody raised their hand with a motion. And they went up to the microphone. They said, you know, I, I really appreciate this. I think we should be praying for our troops. Frankly, I'm a little disappointed that we have to require our churches to actually do it. But nevertheless, I would like to make a motion that if we're going to be required to obey this command, then at least we should also pray for our enemies, the ones our soldiers are fighting against. And like a stick of dynamite, the room exploded in disagreement. You wouldn't believe how angry, maybe you would believe, how angry people got. I saw papers thrown over shoulders. I saw people storm out of the convention center. I witnessed people come up to the microphone and say some of the most hurtful and hateful things I had ever heard. All under the auspices of United Methodists. We debated it for one hour. One whole hour. We're only in church worship for one hour. Imagine being with 5,000 Methodists talking about whether or not we should pray for our enemies for an hour. 60 minutes of pastors and preachers and lay people pontificating about who we are and who we are to be. And after an hour, we finally put it to a vote and we turned it down. 
Not because we don't want to pray for our troops. We voted it down because we could not agree whether or not to pray for our enemies. Let me say that again. We could not agree on whether or not to pray for our enemies. One hour. The conference just released this week that at annual conference, it cost the church $950 a minute to have annual conference. We, that year, spent 60 grand trying to decide whether we should pray for our enemies or not. Trust and obey. Trust who? Obey what? I don't get it. Obedience, it's such a dirty word. I don't like it. I think most of us don't like it. It's a dirty word, and we don't like getting too close to it because it makes us uncomfortable. In this freedom-worshipping culture of ours, we strive for independence and liberty above all else. We don't want to be told what to do. Instead, we talk about being guided by the inner voice. We promise our children that they can be anything they want to be, even when we know that's a lie. We tell people to make their own destiny. And yet Jesus, the one whom we worship and love and adore, he loves us enough to say, obey my commands. Now, no doubt this sounds authoritarian, and perhaps we don't like imagining Jesus this way. We'd rather think of his words as suggestions and not commandments. From the time we're young, we're taught about the folly of fascism. We are told to reject superior rulers who tell us what to do. But lest we reject Jesus and his calls for obedience, let us at least admit the truth of our own subjugation, because we are all obeying somebody. In this world of ours, we respond to a great number of masters with an almost blind and willful ignorance. Our peers... Our families, our jobs, our government, our political parties, even our denominations. They all dictate in some way, shape, or form what we are to say, how we are to act, and who we are to be. And we do as we're told. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know the love that the children of God have when we love God and obey His commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey what He says. And His commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God conquers the world. We could debate, much like we did at annual conference 15 years ago, about what it means to be obedient or not, but I think the better question isn't, are we obedient, but who do we obey? Who do we trust? There are, of course, some Christians who claim that Jesus and the Bible are their ultimate sources of authority, that they trust what the Bible says, that they are obedient to what the Bible says no matter what. And I love those people. I love meeting those people. And I love meeting them for the wrong reason. I love meeting those people because, I don't know, maybe you've read the Bible. There's some weird stuff in the Bible. Go check out Leviticus sometime. It's your homework. You know, in Leviticus, you can read this in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 19. In Leviticus, the children, the people of God, are ex explicitly forbidden from ever wearing clothing made of more than one material. Do you know how hard it is to buy clothing made of one material? 
I'm wearing khakis and a shirt and I don't even know how many pieces of material I have on right now. And I'm breaking one of God's commandments. Look at the back of your tag when you get home. Maybe a couple of you will get to go to heaven. The rest of you are going to burn with me. Because we wore clothing of more than one material. It's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. We are explicitly forbidden from wearing clothing that is made of more than one material. You know, later in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 22. This is one of my favorites. Then, you are forbidden from cutting the sides of your hair or trimming your beard. Take a good hard look around the room for a moment. There are some of us. Some of us are going on to our reward, Brother Walter. Are we not? However, there are some of us, Brother Bob. I'm sorry. <laughs> that big razor got you a one-way ticket down and not up. I'm not making it up. It's in the Bible. You may not wear clothing made of more than one material. Men, you shall not trim the sides of your hair or trim your beard. Anybody have a tattoo? If you do, don't say it. <laughs> Anybody had shellfish recently? Summer's coming. We're near the bay. Guess where you're going. <laughs> and we say the, the law isn't burdensome. Do you know how hard it is to not trim your beard? Half of you don't know what that's like, thanks be to God. You know how hard it is to find clothing made of just one material? These are the commandments. And we are so bold and brazen in our sin that we literally wear it on our sleeve and on our cheek. That we break the law. And not Prince William County law, I'm talking about God's law. That feels burdensome to me. And yet John, in this passage, that Bob, sorry again, Bob. <laughs> Somehow, Jesus is bold to proclaim the opposite. Jesus commands us to obey, to do the commandments. And taking a cue from the New Testament, we, if we want to get a summary of all the commandments, Jesus says you must do this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And a second is like it, you must love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summary of the law. Love God, love neighbor. And loving our neighbor, it's about more than treating folks like family. In fact, sometimes that's exactly the opposite of what we want to do. Just think if you can about having Thanksgiving with family members after a presidential election. That's not what the kingdom of God will look like, thanks be to God. Rules and calls for obedience to love your God and your neighbor, they become nothing more than abstractions unless we are aware that they are tied to this deep union that we have with Christ Jesus. It is precisely because God loves us, in spite of us, that we can love others. It is in the recognition that we do not deserve God's love that we can actually meet the other where they are, and in spite of differences, we can love one another. We follow. We are obedient to this law, not because being close to Jesus helps us get what we want. We follow. We are obedient to Jesus because we believe that being close to him allows God to get out of us whatever God wants. I don't know if you know this, 
but our world is pretty broken right now. We live in a time of deep pluralism, where all these value systems are vying for our allegiance. They're uncritically embraced, such that we no longer even know who we are or what we are doing. We so root ourselves in ourselves that we move further away from God while telling ourselves, well, at least we're free. But the gospel is disorienting. It finds us where we are, whether we're hiding in the shadows or deeply rooted in our own convictions, and it turns it upside down. The messages of grace, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they are unnervingly radical. The commandment to love God and neighbor, though difficult according to the ways of the world, are made possible through the impossible possibility of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. When we believe, not just with our minds, but with our lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, we see how bound together we really are. We start to see how we, all of us, with all of our different earthly perspectives, have been conquered by God for something greater. Right now, the modern church, whether it's the United Methodist Church or conservative evangelicalism, they're all struggling. All of them. The church struggles in large part because of our failure to recognize how we are bound to God first before we are bound to the world. Such that many churches take their cues, not from Scripture, but from the powers and the principalities, and they assert them on Scripture rather than the other way around. That's why our divisions are growing wider and our walls are growing taller. For the better part of the last 50 years... The United Methodist Church has struggled with human sexuality. We've been struggling with it for longer than 50 years, but it's been a part of our conversation for at least the last 50 years. Because right now, right now, in 2018, the United Methodist Church's position on human sexuality is such. The practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. You get the Book of Discipline for our denomination. It says... The practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. It's a sentence. Now, it manifests itself in a number of ways. In some churches, some pastors take that to mean that if two men who are married want to join their church, the pastor can say, no. In some churches, it means that committees can vote together, and if a transgender person is part of their church, they can say, you're not welcome here. And in other places... The church takes it to say that if I or any other clergy person presides over a same-sex wedding, we can lose our credentials and our calling forever. That's where we are right now. That's where we are right now. And of course, there are some people in the church who want that language to change, who want that language to change. There are some people who want that language to stay the way it is. Right now, we have this thing called the Commission on a Way Forward. It's 33 people from across the world in Methodism who have been meeting every month to try to come up with a way forward for our church. Who we are to be. Who can we trust? How can we be obedient? They've been meeting for about a year and a half, and this week the Council of Bishops, this governing body we have in our church, they came together with what plan they would like to recommend for the United Methodist Church. There are three plans. I'll tell you all three, and then I'll tell you what the bishops so on some level, there's a traditional path. It's called the traditional church option. 
that keeps the language as it is, and it bumps up the punishments. Because right now, some people have done some of these things, and they've let them get away with it. So if we go to the traditional option, the language stays the same, and we are rooted in our convictions, and the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. On the far other side is the progressive option. The progressive option. We need to get rid of that language. We need to omit it from our discipline. We need to apologize for the way we've treated LGBTQI people. And we need to move forward in the future. And then, of course, there's people in the middle. There's people in the middle. Kind of like we agree to disagree. The bishops, the council of bishops have said, we're going to try to find the middle option. We're not really sure how it manifests itself in the future, but it might look like this. That every United Methodist Church across the world, every single individual church, will get to choose whether they want to be traditional or whether they want to be progressive. Every individual church. They will decide who they want to be. They will be obedient to themselves. Problematically, then they have to ask every clergy person, do you want to be traditional or do you want to be progressive? Hopefully, the clergy person matches with their church. But if they don't, there will be a great reshuffling of pastors. There's another option. Instead of the local church deciding, It'll be the annual conference. The whole state of Virginia, all the representatives of Methodism will get together and they will vote. Do we want to be traditional or do we want to be progressive? And of course, no matter how they vote, people are going to leave. That's where we are right now. It's all about this one thing. Human sexuality. It's all about who do we trust? It's all about taking these four pegs, as I was talking about before. What does the Bible say? What does the tradition say? What does our reason say? What does our experience say? And using those like a lens to evaluate who we are and who we want to be. I don't really know more than that right now. I know that the global church has to vote on it in February of 2019. So we've got some time before things get sorted out before you figure out what's going to happen to this church God gave us. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know this. And perhaps this is even more important. And this isn't from me. This is from John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Gay, Straight, black, white, soldier, enemy, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We and they are made one by the Spirit in Christ Jesus who came to live and die and rise again. We can do anything we want. We can build our walls higher. We can stretch our divisions wider. We can put stricter language in our institutions. We can do all kinds of things. But Jesus conquers the world. Not me, not you, not the United Methodist Church. Jesus conquers the world. Jesus conquers us. And so it is when we confess with our lips and with our lives that Jesus is the Messiah, we are doing a radical thing. When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we at the same time are telling the world that no one has the same power that Jesus has. 
Not a political party, not a government, not even a church denomination. It pushes us. When we say that Jesus is the Messiah, it pushes us to face all of the powers and all of the principalities and say no more. To confess that Jesus is the Christ is the beginning of a revolution of our hearts. And it turns everything upside down about who we are, who we trust, and who we obey. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Full disclosure, I've been worried about this since I was a teenager. Since the first time I heard about the debate in the United Methodist Church, I frankly thought we would have sorted it out by now, but we haven't. And for a long time, I've been really afraid. Because I love the United Methodist Church. I've given my life to it. I love the United Methodist Church. And it's been interesting because for as much as I've been afraid, that fear has started to dissipate because I remember that we've been here before. <laughs> many, many years ago, the United Methodist Church split over whether or not clergy and lay people got to vote at a conference. Many years ago, we split over whether slaves had a place in the church or not. Many years ago, we split over whether women could speak in church. And I don't need to become pastors, I need to speak in church. We've been here before. When I was a kid, I always wished my church had a balcony. You know, these churches in the south had this nice kind of open area on the bottom, and in the back and the top they had a balcony. I always wanted a church with a balcony because I wanted to go sit all the way back up there and do whatever I want. <laughs> because I was disobedient. For years, I, I dreamt about maybe even getting to serve a church where there'd be a balcony, and I could stand up there and pretend to be God. Ellen, listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> It was only many years later that I learned why churches have balconies. Do you know why? If you go north, there aren't any churches with balconies. They're only in the south. It's not because they don't have space for people. It's because when they were built, the white people sat on the bottom and the black people sat on the bottom. It is part of our history. It is still there in our physical buildings. So I am fearful, but I am also not afraid. Because it's not about what I want. It's not about what we want either. It's about what God wants. Because God conquers the world. And God is the one who invites us to this table. Not me, not you, not Cokesbury, not the United Methodist Church. This is God's table. So as you're able, as my son crawls across the floor on his forehead, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, you have called us here with our different beliefs and our different convictions, with our different political persuasions, with our different sexualities, with our different nationalities. You have made us one here in this place, and for that, we are grateful. We are even more grateful, O Lord, that in spite of what we think and know and believe and act, you still invite us to this table. So continue to forgive us, O Lord, as we strive to figure out whom to trust and whom to obey. Amen. Amen.